following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So this morning, we're in, uh, still in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, right at the end of that chapter though, uh, in verse 23, and we're going to push through into chapter 2, verse 11. So let me read this passage for us. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over you, over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So as you read this passage, uh, it, it's kind of like listening to one end of a telephone conversation. Have you ever had that experience? It's, it's like this with all of Paul's letters, to be honest, but particularly a passage like this. You know how when you're listening to someone talking on the phone, and obviously you can't hear what the person on the other end of the phone is saying, and you're trying to piece together what the other person's saying based on what you hear your friend saying. And so, you know, your, your friend is laughing and you're trying to figure out what, are the other, what joke did the other person crack that has just made you laugh like that? Or, or, or the person that you're with says something, answers a question, and you're, you're trying to figure out what was the question that person asked that made you answer like that? And you're trying to deal with the whole situation based on one side of the conversation. That's what we're doing here with Paul. Paul's dealing with a particular situation in Corinth. Something has happened in Corinth. Something's gone down in Corinth. Uh, but we only have Paul's conversation side. We only have the words that Paul is speaking to try and piece together what's going on. We don't have the Corinthians' reply to Paul. We don't have their response. We don't know exactly what happened when Paul visited the Corinthians and all the back and forths with that. All we have is these letters that Paul writes, this one-way traffic from Paul to the Corinthians. And so based on that, we're trying to figure out what's going on on the other end of the phone. What's happening here? And that's what we're going to try and do, is piece this situation together, try and reconstruct this conflict situation and then make some application into our lives. But we need to get a sense of what, this, what was going on here first. So as best we can tell, what has happened is that Paul, after he wrote 1 Corinthians, so Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and then he made an emergency trip to Corinth. The church was so dysfunctional, it was such a mess, so many problems, he cut his travel plans short and he went straight to Corinth, hopped on a boat, went to Corinth, and tried to deal with the mess that was there. 
that visit was a very, very painful one for Paul. He refers to it here as a painful visit. And what has happened in that time that Paul was at Corinth, someone in the church had a real go at him. Someone in the church launched a really vicious personal attack against Paul. Could have been a group of people, but it was spearheaded by one individual. Now, we don't know who that was, because Paul doesn't say. And we don't know what the issue was, because Paul doesn't say. And so there have been all these fanciful speculations over the centuries about who, who was this guy? Who, who's Paul rebuking here? Who was the person that launched an attack on him? And one of the more interesting theories is that this guy who offended Paul, who attacked Paul, was the same guy that Paul refers to back in 1 Corinthians 5, and he tells him off because he was sleeping with his stepmother. And so maybe that guy now is coming and trying to get some payback against Paul. My own personal theory is it was probably the stepmother that's having a go at Paul now because she really didn't like being found out. And so she's trying to get some payback. Actually, that theory doesn't work because clearly it's a male. Paul talks about him. So we know it's a him. That's about all we know. That was a joke, by the way, if it's your first time here. Uh, but Paul, we don't know what the situation was. Someone has done something. What we do know, we know two things. We know that the attack was personal. That's important. You know, some things in ministry, as a pastor, some things you don't take personally. Some things, you know, they're conflict situations, whatever, and you're not personally involved. Other things you do. Other things you do take personally, and you're personally involved in them, and they cause real wounds. And that's what Paul's talking about here. There's something that's happened. Someone's really aimed their guns at Paul here and had a personal go at him. And you just see by the language that he uses that this has really wounded him. This has really caused some major scars for Paul. So this is a personal attack. And secondly, we do know, based on what he says here, this, this, was, this was a public situation. This was not just something that Paul dealt with with this one guy one-on-one. -on -one. This was something that somehow in some way affected the church. Now, that may have been because a whole lot of people in the church were involved in the situation. It may have just been because people in the church took sides, some this guy and some with Paul, and so it just created a mess and created factions that way. We don't know exactly what happened, but the whole church, sadly, was involved in this conflict and in this attack that this guy was making upon Paul. And so to the point where Paul feels the need to deal with this publicly, hence he's putting it in his letter, which would be read out in the church. It's how these letters worked. So this is now clearly a public situation. So it was a personal attack, and it was a public attack, but we don't know much more than that. Paul was so offended by what happened in Corinth, and so affected by that attack, that he decided after that trip not to make a second visit to Corinth. He was planning to, he'd told them that he would, and they, would, they were very disappointed. But Paul decided it was just too hard, it was too, he was so deeply wounded, he says, I made up my mind, this is verse 1, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. Now, Paul's not trying to avoid conflict here. He's not running away from his problems, but he is saying, it's just right now, I, I need the space. If I, he says, if I come back now and deal with you and, and just come back into the middle of this, it's only going to be another painful, painful time. It's only going to end in tears. But Paul knows he has to deal with the situation. He knows he has to deal with this guy. But right now, his response is to send a letter to the church. And he sent a letter even before 2 Corinthians. He says in verse 4, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. So Paul has penned a letter trying to deal with the situation, trying to deal with the offender, trying to deal with the church, and it's caused him a lot of pain. But he's chosen at this point not to make another visit. 
Now then what has happened subsequently, and this is where the story turns again, is it seems like from verse 5 onwards that what the church has then done is they've dealt with the situation themselves. So then at a certain point, the church leadership has decided actually what this guy has done is wrong. What this guy has done is sinful. This is not just a conflict situation. This is completely inappropriate. And the leadership of the church have decided they're not going to tolerate this wrongdoing and they have excommunicated this guy. They've put him out of the church. This is what we call church discipline. It's not anybody's most fun job in the church. It's not why elders sign up to be elders, but it's part of the function of church leadership that has an absolute last resort when people are causing real damage to the health of the church community that people are asked to leave the church. And that's what's happened with this guy. He was asked by the elders to leave the church. So they've recognized that this guy was a real troublemaker. They've recognized that this attack was just wrong against Paul. They've recognized that this is causing major division in the church, and they've dealt with it. They have put this guy out of fellowship. They've asked him to leave the church. And so in one sense now, the problem's resolved. In one sense now, Paul can look at this and say, well, okay, so I know the leadership's behind me. They've recognized the problem. They've dealt with the offender. The health of the community has been protected and the storm's kind of, by this time, blown over. But now Paul turns to the all-important issue of forgiveness. So for Paul, the resolution of the situation is not enough. Now what Paul is interested in is forgiveness. And interestingly, he doesn't say, you look in this chapter, this passage, he doesn't tell the church to reinstate the guy to fellowship. There's nothing in here about him saying, now you need to bring him back into the community and reinstate him in the church. There's an open question as to whether that happened. It may have happened, Church discipline should be restorative in that sense, should provide a pathway back, but it's an open question as to whether that happened. But what Paul does say is you need to reach out to this guy now with love. You need to reach out to this guy with compassion. You need to comfort him so that he's not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So now Paul is calling the community to forgive, to exercise community forgiveness. And at the same time, Paul's joining himself to that and he's saying, I need to forgive too. He recognizes that he is the one who's borne the brunt of the assault. He's been wounded, he's been offended, and Paul recognizes, I've got someone now to forgive. I've got to go on a journey with this. And so Paul pledges his commitment to forgive this person, and he models to the Corinthians what forgiveness looks like. So what I want to do is take this situation of forgiveness that Paul is dealing with here, where Paul has to forgive someone who has offended him, and use this to look at what forgiveness looks like in our lives and in our contemporary context today. C.S. Lewis has a great quote on forgiveness. He says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. That is so true, isn't it? Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they've got something to forgive. Forgiveness is one of those things. We love the concept of it. We love the virtue of it. We love hearing stories about other people forgiving. Right? We love the story. That guy, that woman, that person, that group, they forgave. Isn't that wonderful? We, we, we post those things on Facebook all day long. We love forgiveness stories right up to the point when we've got someone to forgive. And then someone messes with us. And then someone offends us. And then someone hacks us off. And someone wounds us. Or even worse, they hurt someone that we love. And then at that point... Forgiveness just goes right out the window. And all the Facebook posts and all the stories and all the feel-good stuff, that all just goes to the back of our heads and we become bitter, angry, hateful, vengeful, resentful people. Forgiveness is the furthest thing from our mind. 
And it shouldn't be that way. Because forgiveness is supposed to be one of the distinctive marks of the Christian. It is supposed to be one of the distinctive marks of the Christian community. We have Jesus, who in in one of his last words in the gospel, looks at his accusers and oppressors and says, Father, forgive them. We have Jesus who gave us a prayer that says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's all there. We love the idea of it, but it's brutally hard to do. And I think sometimes we just don't recognize just how hard it is. Forgiveness is a hard road, and it's a long road, but it's such an important road to walk. So I want to draw from this passage three things, and I'm calling them three myths of forgiveness. I want to look at three things forgiveness is not. A little bit of reverse psychology for you this morning. Three things forgiveness is not, because I think we tend to clutter forgiveness with other things. Maybe part of the reason we struggle with it is because we tend to mix and mingle it with other stuff, and we don't like the other stuff, and so then we not end up not liking forgiveness. So I want to talk about what forgiveness is not, and hopefully in the process then tease out what forgiveness is. First thing, forgiving is not forgetting. We all know the saying, forgive and forget, but frankly, it is so unhelpful, we just need to bury it. That is such an unhelpful saying, forgive and forget, because what we think that means, if you take that on board, forgive and forget, it feels like then, if I've got someone to forgive, and if I'm going to forgive and forget, I then need to pretend like this has never happened. Does forgiving someone mean that I need to basically look the other way and pretend like nothing's ever happened? Does it mean I'm just excusing what's been done? I've been hurt. I've been wounded. I've been wronged. Does forgiveness mean for me just tolerating wrongdoing, just excusing wrongdoing? That's not what Paul does. That's not what Paul does in this passage. Paul doesn't forgive and forget. He doesn't. He forgives and remembers. Paul's very open about what's happened. If he was just forgiving and forgetting, he never would have brought it up, but he brings it up and he talks about the pain that it caused him. And moreover, he affirms the community's decision to excommunicate this guy. Now, this might sound a little bit harsh, but Paul doesn't say, no, 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 you guys were wrong to put this guy out of the church. Instead, you should have forgiven him. No, no, he says, the, the punishment, here it is right here in verse 6, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is what? Sufficient. So Paul's affirming this decision of the eldership to remove this man from fellowship. It's a weighty decision, but Paul doesn't go against it. He says, you were right, that was sufficient. Don't go beyond that now. It was sufficient. But now you need to forgive. See, it's not either discipline or forgiveness. In this case, it is discipline and forgiveness. These things are not mutually exclusive. Forgiveness does not look the other way at the need for justice. You may have been wronged, someone may have done something to you, and there is a legitimate need for disciplinary action. Maybe something's happened in your workplace, something's happened at school, wherever it is, and there is a need for steps to be taken. Forgiveness does not mean ignoring that. Forgiveness does not mean putting all that aside. There may even be a need in some time for legal proceedings to happen, for legal justice to take its road. Now, we've got to be careful that we don't overdo it and we don't sort of look for these punitive ways just to pummel someone. But there may be a need, a legitimate need, for repercussions, for consequences, for disciplinary action to happen. Forgiving doesn't negate any of that. Forgiveness doesn't take away the need for any of that. That may need to happen. But then at the same time, we can still exercise personal forgiveness. 
Because the difference is this. We can pursue justice. Justice is good. This is right. But what we are not called to do is to pursue vengeance. This is the key distinctive. Forgiveness means giving up the right to vengeance because justice is about a formal process of consequences for wrongs done. Vengeance is about me getting some personal satisfaction from seeing you suffer because of what you've done to me. And when someone comes against us, when someone hurts us or they hurt someone we love, what we want is vengeance, right? And we have this little Kiwi form of vengeance called passive-aggressive behavior. And we maneuver because we never want to confront, we never want to talk directly about it, so we maneuver, we maneuver, we maneuver. And we just make sure that somehow they're going to feel some pain. And it'll be an unrelated area of life, but I'm just going to maneuver. I'm going to talk to this person over here to make sure I poison them against this person over here. I'm going to see if I can cut off some funding over here. I'm going to see if I can influence this decision over here. So somehow I need to make sure they struggle. I need to make sure I see them suffer in some way because they've got to feel the weight of what they've done to me. That's vengeance. And if I can't do any of that, then what I'm going to do is take vengeance in my mind. And I will slay them in my mind. If I have to, you may be the most uncreative, boring person in the world, but I guarantee you, you are endlessly creative when it comes to constructing scenarios of vengeance in your mind about what you would love to do to that person if you saw them in a dark alley and you had the guts to do it and you had the guts to say it. We become so creative with those scenarios of vengeance because our heart just wants to see them suffer because we feel wronged. Of course we do. And we feel wounded and we just need to get some kind of payback. But this is biblical forgiveness that we lay down our right to vengeance. And we honestly, before God, as followers of Jesus, we say, God, I'm giving up my right. Whatever right I thought I had to vengeance, I'm giving it up. I'm laying it down. I am not going to seek vengeance in any form against this person, not even in my mind. I'm not going to be passive aggressive. I'm not going to bring it up with other people. I'm not going to allow these scenarios to just keep playing like a broken record in my head of the stuff I wish I'd said or done or whatever. I am laying down my right to vengeance. Now, justice may be taking its course. Disciplinary action may be taking its course over here. The repercussions, the consequences, that may all need to be carefully worked out. But at the same time, over here, as biblical Christians, we can be saying, God, I'm giving up my right to personal vengeance because that is the essence of forgiveness laying down my right to vengeance. So forgiving does not mean forgetting. It means remembering in a healthy way. It means remembering in a redemptive way where we give up our right to vengeance even though we don't look the other way at the need for justice. Okay, second myth around forgiveness. Forgiving does not mean restoring trust. Sometimes I think we assume that in order to forgive someone, we have to jump straight back into the relationship exactly as it was before. That in order to forgive someone, I need to take them back as a close, close friend or a confidant. That I need to rehire them or I need to trust them again straight away or have the same degree of respect I had for them before, whatever it means. But forgiveness is not that. It wasn't that for Paul. There's another letter that Paul wrote and he talks about this guy called Alexander. Alexander the metal worker. And Paul says, this guy Alexander did me a great deal of harm. And you know the next, next sentence Paul says? Be on your guard against him. Now Paul preached forgiveness. 
Paul knew about forgiveness. I don't doubt that Paul had forgiven that guy. And yet at the same time, he says, be on your guard against that person. Just because you go through a process of forgiving someone does not make that person a trustworthy person. If there's an untrustworthy person before you forgive them, your forgiveness does not make them trustworthy. If there's someone who is not a safe person, you forgiving them, and it is right to forgive them, but you forgiving them does not make them a safe person. It simply means you've forgiven them. That's a good thing, but it doesn't mean suddenly trusting them again. It doesn't mean suddenly respecting them. It doesn't mean suddenly treating them as a safe person for you and your family to be around. It doesn't mean taking them back as a close friend. Now, we should forgive people from our heart. And that means, yes, being pleasant, being warm, being friendly, especially within the context of Christian relationships, still treating them as a brother or a sister in Christ. But it doesn't mean restoring trust with a person. Trust takes a long time to be rebuilt. Respect takes a long time to be regained. Relationships take a long time to be restored. And sometimes they can't be. Sometimes there can be. There may be no reunion. But that, again, does not stop forgiveness from taking place. There are people in my life that I have genuinely, before God, forgiven but I wouldn't trust them. I wouldn't trust them again because I don't see them as trustworthy people. And I don't think that means that forgiveness hasn't happened. Forgiveness is a different thing to trust. What forgiveness involves is laying down the feelings of bitterness in our heart. You may not trust the person. You may even need to put boundaries in place in your life against that person who has wronged you. You may need to protect yourself and your family, friends, whatever, from that person. But still, forgiveness is taking all of the negative emotions that you feel as a result of what's been done and laying those down before God. It's taking all the bitterness that you feel. And I know a message like this brings it all up again, brings up that hurt that was done a long, long time ago, surfaces all of that. But it means taking all of that negativity. It takes the grudge that you feel and it lays that down before God. And it says, God, I want you to help me work on this, this, neg this rage. And often it is a rage, isn't it? It's a deep, seething, loathing rage that we feel on the inside, if we're honest, right? You might not say it out loud, but that's how we feel. And that's the heart of forgiveness, is taking those feelings of rage, those feelings of bitterness, those feelings of anger, those feelings of injustice, and laying them down before God and saying, God, I don't even know how to deal with these, these, these emotions that are just swirling around, these negative, awful emotions towards this person. I just lay them down. I lay them down before you and I ask that you would give me the strength to forgive this person. I can't trust them. I can't honestly respect them. And I can't right now reestablish a relationship with them. But I pray, God, that you would give me the strength to deal with this negative bitterness that is in my heart, that you would transform that into a love for that person. And one of the best ways to do this is to pray for that person. This is really hard. But if you have someone, that person that's annoyed you or wounded you or offended you, the best ways of transforming all the bitterness and the rage that's brewing in your heart is genuinely to pray for that person. Have you done this? Pray for them. Pray God's blessing on their life. Through gritted teeth, if necessary. Pray God's blessing on their family. Pray. This is hard, isn't it? Especially those situations where they're doing great, but because of what they've done for you, you're struggling. But pray for, their, for God's blessing on their, on their family, on their future. 
pray it in faith, pray it even though you don't feel it, that's okay. And this is one of the most powerful things God will use to transform that negative storm of emotions that's going on within you. So forgiveness does not mean restoring trust with an untrustworthy person, but it does mean dealing honestly with the negative emotions and feelings that we have on the inside and handing those over to God. And then finally, forgiveness. Forgiving is not instantaneous. And again, I think we get tripped up here and we get so disappointed because we, we have this great moment of strength, maybe a day like today, and you feel, yes, I'm going to forgive that person. I'm not going to hold on to this anymore. I'm finally going to forgive this person and set them free. And then you wake up tomorrow and what happens? You feel exactly the same. All the bitterness is still there. All the rage is still there. All the badness, all the desire for vengeance is still there. And you think, well, what happened? Did it not work? Did I not say the magic words? Did I not get the formula right? What happened? It's because forgiveness is a journey, often a very, very long journey. Look, look at the words that Paul uses here to describe the wounds that he suffered as a result of this. He uses the word painful in verse 1. He uses the word grief and grieved, anguish, distress, tears. This is what has happened to Paul. Deep, deep wounds have been caused in Paul's heart and soul. Do you think those wounds just disappeared because he said, I'm going to forgive you? Forgiveness is the beginning of a, of a lifelong process often in which those wounds are healed. The deeper the wound, the longer the time it is going to take to heal. And some of you have been wounded deeply, deeply by people. And you cannot expect those wounds just to be healed because you have decided to forgive someone. That is going to take time. And I imagine Paul probably had to get up every morning for years and years and years and decide to forgive this guy all over again. Forgiveness starts with a moment in time. It starts with that decision of bringing the person to God in, in our hearts. They don't need to be there, but bringing them to God and saying, God, I forgive them. I lay down my right to vengeance and I give you the bitter feelings. But then it has worked out over days, weeks, months, and years. As we continue surrendering, every time the negative feelings surface, we hand them over to God again. Every time the desire for vengeance surfaces, we hand it over to God again. We lay it down. God, I, I can't handle this. I don't have the strength to handle this. I give it to you again. I forgive this person again from the depth of my heart. And every time that we do try and take a bit of vengeance, or we do talk to someone, you know, whatever, then we ask God's forgiveness for our own lack of forgiveness. And we we continue the journey. It's a long, long road. And many of you, probably all of us in some way, are somewhere on the road with someone else. We've all got someone in mind in our heart that we need to forgive. And maybe the hurt got caused a long, long time ago. Maybe it was really historic. But I want you to consider, where are you on the journey? How do you know when the journey's finished? How do you know when the journey of forgiveness is finally complete? Because you can look back on the event, you can look back on the incident, and you don't recoil with pain. And your stomach doesn't churn with the painfulness of that memory and the rage doesn't suddenly rush back to the surface. When you can recall that event with a calm heart and a still spirit, then you know the journey of forgiveness is finally complete. But don't worry if that still seems a long, long way off. The point is, can you take another step on the journey? Because what happens is we get stuck. What happens is we go through a bit of forgiveness. We decide to forgive. We get a little way down the track and then it all just gets too hard. We see the person round. 
And every time just catching sight of them churns our stomach again. Or we hear how well they're doing while we're suffering and struggling away. And we feel like they've just got away with it. And we have this intense feeling of injustice. And if that's the case, the journey of forgiveness is not yet finished. And for some of you this morning, you may be stuck on the road of forgiveness. You're on the journey, you've made the commitment, but you're just stuck. And and, and as you think about that situation now, and you think about that person now, if you're honest with yourself, you think, well, I really haven't made much progress in forgiving that person in the past year, two years, whatever. I'm, I'm actually no further along. I just want to encourage you today, allow God to keep you going on the journey. Recognize it's a journey, recognize it's a long, long journey, but allow God to keep you going on the journey of forgiveness, not in your strength, but by His grace. And if you just feel like, I I just actually don't feel like I've got it in me, come back again to exactly what we've been doing this morning and just soaking your soul in God's incredible forgiveness of you. And just come back again and appreciate the depth of His amazing love and His extravagant forgiveness that He came looking for you and forgave you when you didn't want it, you hadn't earned it, you didn't care about Him, you told Him to shove off, and yet God still found you and rescued you and forgave you for a billion times more than he's asking you to forgive that person. And so out of the depths of the Father's forgiveness of us through Jesus Christ, that's where the strength and the power comes from then for us to extend the gift of forgiveness to others. And maybe if you're stuck on the journey, it's a day for you just to marinate your soul again in the extravagant forgiveness of the Father. And allow that to be the place from which the Spirit of God picks you up and helps you to take another step on the road to your own forgiving. Paul gets to the end of this passage and he finishes in a surprising way. At the end of verse 10, he says, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Paul gets to this whole, through this whole thing on forgiveness and then he brings Satan into the picture. In the last verse, it seems kind of surprising. But what Paul is saying is this is an area of our lives where Satan will love to rush in and agitate. These situations where we've been wronged, we've been offended, we've been wounded, we've been, whether it's just a minor annoyance or whether it's major wounds, This is an area of your life where the evil one will rush in and you won't see him coming and you won't think it's him. You'll just feel like it's, you'll see the other person and you'll be mad at them and you won't realize actually this is something Satan's using to ruin your own heart. This is something Satan's using to plant these seeds of death inside your own heart. Because as long as you hold on, if you hold on to bitterness long enough, you're going to become a bitter person. You hold on to resentment long enough, you will be a resentful person. If you hold on to vengeance long enough, you will be a vengeful person. Our unwillingness to forgive will shape your character over time. That's who you will become. And in fact, what we do, we don't even realize it, but by refusing to forgive and nursing the wound and nursing the anger, we are giving the person power over our lives. You're continuing to give the offender power over your life by staying in the place of bitterness and staying in that place of deep, deep resentment and refusing to move from there. You're giving them power and you are giving the evil one power to rush in and agitate your soul. It's a wonderful quote, one of my favorite quotes on forgiveness by Lewis Smead. He wrote a great book called The Art of Forgiving, best book you can read on forgiveness if you want to go deeper into this. He says, when we forgive, we set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner we set free is us. Isn't that great? 
We think it's about the other person. We think, oh, I need to forgive for their sake. No, no, God calls you to forgive for your sake because as long as you're harboring the bitterness, the anger, the hatred, the rage, it is a spiritual cancer in your soul and it will destroy you. When we forgive, we set a person, a prisoner free and then suddenly we realize actually the prisoner was me. The whole, I was the one locked in chains. I was the one bound up in bitterness and anger and hatred and it was killing me. It was eroding my soul. It was destroying and damaging and compromising my relationship with God and my spiritual growth. And when we accept God's help to forgive another person, we allow God to set us free from that prison and bring us into this place of freedom, into this place of grace. And because we realize what forgiven people we are, we have a solid ground on which to stand and be forgiving people. So let's not be unaware of Satan's schemes. Let's not be unaware that those times someone hurts you are exactly the times that Satan will rush in and try and wound you and try and agitate you and try and cause you to have a lack of forgiveness for someone else because it is going to be damaging to your own soul. I know that forgiveness is a really hard road. And I sense even while I'm talking to you this morning, all the, the pain that some of you are carrying around this and just the anger that some of you have towards others. That person might be sitting in the room right now. That person that you have to forgive. They may be a long way from here. That hurt that you're carrying, it might be very, very recent. Or it might be a long, long time ago. But it's real and it hurts. And days like today bring it all back up again. But if I can just encourage you, in the first instance, to fix your eyes on Jesus, the one who said, Father, forgive, the one who calls us to forgive only because we have first been forgiven. I think of the song, that worship song that we've sung occasionally, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit lives within me because you died and rose again. We're a forgiven people because Christ was crucified and condemned and judged. And that forgiveness is the place on which to stand in order to be a forgiving person. And I encourage you this morning, what is the next step to take for you on the journey of forgiveness? Don't allow yourself to get stuck. Don't allow yourself to think, well, I said it once. I said I forgive you once way back when. If you know you're still carrying anger, if you know you're still carrying that grudge, if you know you still can't stand the sight of that person, refuse to serve in the ministry team with that person, walk the other way when you see that person coming, your stomach churns when you think of what that person did, then the journey of forgiveness is continuing for you. And I want to plead with you on the basis of Scripture to continue along the road of forgiveness. Don't go backwards, don't get stuck, but by the grace of God, move forward. May we be forgiving people. May we be a community of forgiveness. Amen? For Christ's sake. Let's pray. So God, you know we're talking about hard things this morning. And you know the pain that comes along with all this, Lord. I'm really conscious that this is not, uh, these, this is not just Bible verses, God. These are real people who have hurt us, people that are in our minds and hearts right now who we just struggle with, people that we can't trust, people that have wounded us, that have taken advantage of us, people that have hurt and annoyed us and offended us in deep ways. And God, we just acknowledge to you honestly this morning that we're carrying scars. Just acknowledge to you, God, we can't hide our wounds from you. And we're, we're hurt, people. And we're, we're, we're wounded. And we just want to say honestly, God, that we don't really have it in us. We can't, we can't do this, God. 
At the same time, God, we remember your grace is so sufficient. And we trust, God, that you will give us the power to forgive, power that we don't have, strength that we don't have, but that you'll give us the power to forgive. And I pray for every person here this morning who has someone in their heart right now that they know they need to forgive. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would fill them with the courage to lift that person to you in their mind's eye and to genuinely say, I forgive you. To lay down the vengeance, to lay down the bitterness, to lay down the grudge, to lay down the desire to get even, and to honestly, God, right now we pray for those people. Hard as it is, we pray for the ones who have hurt us. You tell us to pray for our enemies, and so we do, God. We pray, we pray now for the people that have wronged us. We pray for the people that have hurt our families. Pray for the people that have caused us harm, the ones that know it and the ones that have no idea the damage they've done in our lives. And we pray that your blessing would rest upon them, that they would know your favour, that they would know your love, that they would know your presence. And as we forgive them, God, and as we carry on this tough road of forgiveness, we pray you'd continually refresh our hearts with the knowledge of your deep and full and complete forgiveness for us. Thank you that we are a forgiven people. Make us a forgiving people, we pray. For Christ's sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.